He was born in China to missionaries at the turn of the 20th century. He would die young in the same country after a lifetime of service to people during the turbulent years of World War II. But he was not known for this service. He was known for another astounding event. This event would propel his name to the forefront of culture for a time. It was an event from the 1920s, which would be celebrated again in the 1970s, thanks to an Oscar-winning movie. That was but a small portion of a life of service, which writes an extraordinary Jesus story for us today. And I'll tell you that story in just a moment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Jesus Stories podcast. This podcast shares the stories of people who have lived out the life of Jesus in their lives and offer us examples and hope of how a life of faith glorifies Jehovah God and his son Jesus and projects hope to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. I am your storyteller, George Taylor. These Jesus stories come to you thanks to your support and the prayers of the people around the world. You can find out how to join that support by going to our website, jesusstories.info. Click on the Support This Podcast tab. That's jesusstories.info. Don't forget, we began this podcast by telling the story of Jesus' life in its entirety. All the episodes are available on most podcast players and on our website, jesusstories.info. China is a challenging country for missionaries. This is the case in 1902 and even now. Our man was born there in 1902 in China. His Scottish parents were missionaries at a time when the warlords were competing for power and Christians, both Chinese and Western, were being murdered in the process. At the age of five, he was enrolled with a sibling in school in London. Now, he loved mathematics and science and sports. As he grew, his competitiveness and athleticism began to be noticed. He was a track and field star and captain of his rugby team. In university, he studied physics and chemistry, and he ran. Under the training of a volunteer tutor, he won race after race, attracting the attention of the press and speculation that there might be an Olympic champion in their midst. He was fast, earning the nickname of the Flying Scotsman. Now that was the name of a train which ran in the area, and you might now know who I'm talking about, but stay tuned, there's more to the story. One of the things our man hated was public speaking. He probably might be that way, too. He was invited to speak for an evangelistic rally outside Edinburgh, a town of hard-scrabble coal miners. Maybe they would listen to an upcoming athletic star with a Scottish background. Well, come they did. Not necessarily for the evangelism, but to hear from the athlete 
but this athlete spoke of his faith in Jesus. This engagement led to more speaking dates, something he wasn't expecting. He was gifted athletically, and specifically in running. He could run like the wind, like the flying Scotsman. He wanted to glorify Jehovah God in his life, but the question was, how could running bring glory to Jehovah? His talent, he found, gave him a stage from which to speak, and he chose to speak of his Lord, Jesus the Christ. There was a famous race where he was accidentally knocked down at the starting block. This was a short race, just a quarter of a mile, so being knocked down could cost him a lot of time in the run. As he got up, he was 20 yards behind his competitors. He gave pursuit and ultimately won the heat. When asked how he had won, he replied, the first half, I ran as hard as I could. The second half, I ran faster with God's help. The race cost him so much physically that he could not win another race for the next year. He was still a contender for the Olympics, and in the fall of 1923, he received the schedule for events from the British Olympic Association for the 1924 Games. He noted that his event, the 100-meter race, was to be run on a Sunday afternoon. But our man's faith would not allow him to run on that day. As a devoted follower and believer in Jesus, he was convicted that Sunday, the Lord's Day, was to be a holy day, a day set apart from the others for rest and worship. It was not a day to run a competition. And this was not a position from which he would budge despite efforts brought to bear to convince him to compete. He would glorify Jehovah God and allow Jehovah to sort out the winner. Now, knowing he would not run this event, he began training differently. He would run the 400-meter event, an event which required a different thinking and strategy. His training took him to the finals, and for the event, he was required to run in the worst position possible, the outside lane. In that lane, he was unable to gauge the pace and progress of the rest of the field he was competing against. So he began by setting a pace that was seemingly impossible to sustain for this length of race. But he did sustain it, and he won by five meters, earning a gold medal for his performance. Now, our man's life doesn't end there. I mean, he's only in his early 20s. And while this is perhaps the most famous event in his life, there was a movie about it in the 1970s, his life goes on to show even more devotion to Jesus. He stunned the world by announcing that he would no longer run. He became a missionary to China, teaching science and math and sports at the Anglo-Chinese College in Tianjin, China. To train for this new page in his life, he enrolled in college to study theology. He continued to speak of his faith in evangelistic campaigns, and he would participate in local sporting events, bringing out people who might never attend such a campaign. In 1925, he entered China. Living in a house in the compound of the London Missionary Society in Tietzin, 
This is today known as Tianjin. He taught as he had planned. He led Bible studies, he coached soccer, he helped with dramatic productions, and he worked on his Chinese language skills. The political situation in China and the rest of the world was deteriorating rapidly. Twelve years later, 1937, World War II arrives in China with Japan's attacks in the eastern area of the country, including the city of Tianjin. Within three days, the city was under Japanese control. Refugees from the carnage flooded into Tianjin, all of whom needed help. And our man spent his time helping those refugees, even when his own life was in danger. Finally, in 1939, he and his family left China to furlough in Canada. But despite the unrest and chaos of the war, the pull to return to the work in China brought them back there. He was assigned to a rural outpost deep inland as a village pastor. Unfortunately, he couldn't bring his family with him. Even in this outpost, evidence of the cruelty of the Japanese forces was clear. He wrote his wife, when I am all out, it is giving giving all the time and trying to get to know the people and trying to leave them a message of encouragement and peace in a time when there is no external peace at all. Due to the deteriorating conditions in China, our man and his family decided that it was better for his wife and children to leave for Canada, and so they left. In 1941, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. Japan attacks Pearl Harbor and our man's life changes dramatically. The Japanese rounded up all the foreign forces assigned to protect foreign citizens in Tietzen. They sent the college students home and they moved all the foreign citizens into one crowded compound. Missionaries were no longer allowed to work. No teaching, no preaching, no practicing of medicine. Our man decided to write and he helped as he could with his fellow detainees. He wrote a devotional guide. It's still available today. It's called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. You'll find a link to the book in our show notes. Two years later, all the foreign nationals were sent to an internment camp. They're now considered enemy nationals. By railroad, they were shipped 300 miles west. For some 300 captives, their new home was a one-block compound built by Presbyterian missionaries. This compound of 400 rooms, a hospital, and a church was guarded from towers with searchlights and soldiers with guns. Furthermore, the plumbing had been ripped from the facilities and hospital equipment had been stolen. The internees, people from differing faith traditions, all worked together to improve their conditions, whether keeping up with basic needs like cooking food or making time for entertainment. Our man became uncle to the camp's children. He taught in the camp's school, organized sports and games. He planned worship services. He would referee games for the kids, even on a Sunday, because as one internee, who was 17 at the time, said, it was more Christ-like to do it than to follow the letter of the law. As time wore on, life in the camp became harder. Everyone's patience wore thin. 
A man continued his efforts to encourage his fellow internees. He conducted Bible classes with an emphasis on loving one's enemies, even their Japanese guards. One young 17-year-old remembered that our man gave him his running shoes when the young man's shoes wore out during the winter. It's now late 1944. The internees have been two years in the camp. Our man is experiencing terrible headaches. Camp doctors treat him for the flu. Friends thought he might be depressed. Perhaps he has had a nervous breakdown from working too hard. In early 1945, he suffered a minor stroke. Now the doctors felt he may have a brain tumor, but with no medical equipment, there was no way to tell. A little over a week later, he slipped into a coma and died that evening. Who is our man? What's his name? Well, if you haven't guessed it, it's Eric Lydell. Here's what people said about Eric Lydell. Stephen Metcalf was the man who received Eric's running shoes. He said he was known not because of his Olympic prowess, but because he was Eric. He was the kind of person who was a friend to everyone. His eldest daughter says, I've met a lot of children in the camp, the same age as we were, and they were put in the camp without their parents. And he made a great influence and steadiness in their lives there. So in that sense, God's hand was there. One of those children, Joyce Strength said, he made Christ's life so relevant and made it feel like we who followed Christ must do what he asked us to do when we are in the situation we are in. His friend, A.P. Cullen, who knew him most of his life, said he was literally God-controlled in his thoughts, judgments, actions, words, to an extent I have never seen surpassed and rarely seen equaled. Every morning he rose early to pray and read the Bible in silence, talking and listening to God, pondering the day ahead, and often smiling as if it a private joke. Sixty-three years after his death, the Chinese government revealed a fact about Eric that had not been previously known. He was included in a prisoner exchange between Britain and Japan, and he gave up his position to a pregnant woman. Eric Lydell gave up much more than a chance to win gold for his signature run, the 100-meter race. And while he did win gold for the 400-meter, he showed the world how to give up one's life in the pursuit of God's will for that life. And in doing so, he wrote a hard-to-forget Jesus story for all of us to consider and to emulate. These Jesus stories come to you because you pray for us and support us. We thank you for that. Won't you consider joining the effort? You can find out how by going to our website, jesusstories.info. Click on the Talk to Us tab. Now, in the last episode, two weeks ago, I promised a Jesus story extra which I have yet to upload. I, I've had computer issues. They're now resolved. So with this Jesus Stories episode, there will be two Jesus Stories extras to enjoy. You can check them out on my Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash Jesus Stories. 
or click on the link in our show notes. Join me in about two weeks. We'll have another Jesus story, a life given to Jesus, shared with you and me in this space. We'll see you then. Sweet is that ever was heard.